mindfulness mode. Write down your intentions. There's something so powerful about writing your intentions down around money. Welcome, Mindful Tribe. Great to have you here on Mindfulness Mode one more time. And I'm here to talk financial topics today. We're talking about money and we're talking with a leading financial advisor. He's an author, he's a public speaker, and he's renowned for his mindfulness approach to money. And he's the founder and former CEO of Abacus, which is a values-driven financial consulting firm managing over $3 billion in assets. And my guest has literally transformed the lives of so many people who have been his clients and helped them achieve financial success on their own terms with a whole slant on mindfulness. My guest today is Spencer Sherman. Spencer, are you in mindfulness mode today? <laughs> uh, yes, I, I am. You know, and I think it was because I did a sitting this morning and I like to say that money to me is the like the, the least mindful area for many of us, including myself. So I have this like intention every day to bring mindfulness to money. Oh, that's fantastic. So on that note, what does mindfulness mean to you? To me, what mindfulness means is being very aware of our impulses, our emotions, especially like this emotional awareness around the domain of our lives where we're tend to be least mindful. That's why there's something ironic about this, being mindful around money, huh? Well, I think it's the place where <laughs> you really need to bring the most mindfulness to because we've abandoned it for so long. And yet it holds such fertile territory I mean, This to learn about ourselves and to affect change with our money habits so that we see different numbers going forward uh, with our finances. So we can start to pay attention when we're in the store. Like what I'm doing is noticing my, my excitement, my intensity when I'm buying, especially larger purchases. I feel this frenetic energy going, and it's coming from a place of fear often. And so then I can be with that fear when I'm aware of it. And then I can make the purchase decision from a much wiser, rational place rather than the fearful place. Because the fearful place will often drive me to either buy the thing because, well, you're, you're going to miss out if you don't buy it or not buy it because I feel so paralyzed. Neither of those is often the, you know, the wise option. So I think this, this, this mindfulness is, you know, with money is like, I always say it's, it's not so polite to interrupt others, but it's fine to interrupt yourself. So when you're having those fears come up, those anxieties come up around money, that's a powerful moment to do this five-second intervention, interruption of yourself and just see what's beneath that anxiety. Can you interrupt it, take a pause, and then see what's required, what's neat, what's the action that you need to take with your finances. Tell me what, way back when, what got you into this whole area of money? What made, what, why was that an interest of yours? Yeah, it's, wow. Well, of course, I mean, I was a typical teenager and my father was very driven business guy. And I said to him one day, I'm gonna have nothing to do with money. I hate money. 
It's not going to be in my future at all. And yet I noticed that I was attracted to the, to the nuances of money, to all the, the, the madness around money. I mean, that's the title of my first book, The Cure for Money Madness, that you know, I'm, see, I'm starting to see wealthy people feel this sense of scarcity. And then you hear about people who don't have money who feel a sense of abundance. And it was all so confusing to me. And that complexity, Bruce, actually became very attractive to me. And then I was at Wharton Business School and there's a course in financial planning at Wharton and getting my MBA. And I said, well, this combines my math background and my interest in psychology. So I can get to put those two together and that sort of became this perfect career choice. And then I had, and I think you know about, I had this, this experience of, of, of a fire in my first job in the office building. And that fire ended up being the catalyst for me to kind of review my life. Um, because I did something very impulsive that, in that fire. I, I, I went into the building to retrieve my worthless laptop. And you know, so I risked my life to retrieve this laptop that, that was worthless. But it got me to review my life. And to, to do that, I actually went on a meditation retreat. Uh, and that I, I feel uh, mindfulness meditation practices are really, um, they, they don't seem like they belong in the same sphere as money, but I think they're, they're, they're so connected to money because we're so driven by beliefs that we inherited when we were children. And those beliefs stay in us. And in order to overcome those beliefs, to soften those beliefs, uh, mindfulness meditation techniques are incredibly powerful and very simple. Yeah, they are. And I want to take you back to that retreat. What was it like when you got there? Were you a little bit out of your element or were you pretty comfortable? What was that retreat like for you? Yeah, I... Well, at first, I just was stunned by the silence. It was a silent retreat, and I, I grew up in New York City, so I didn't understand silence. And especially when there's intentional silence, it felt so strange to me. And I kept wanting to connect with people. And at first, I was connecting, sort of I was connect, looking at people's faces, their eyes, and then the instruction comes, don't even look at another person just stay with yourself. I said, oh my God, I can't even do that. And as the, it was a 10 day retreat, as the days grew on, I noticed that my energy levels was increasing, that I wasn't getting distracted and, and diluting my energy like I often do. So that was an epiphany for me. And by the end of the retreat, I found that that intentional silence was actually very powerful. Uh, and it led me to feel really um, very alive by the end of the retreat and having learned some very, uh, very powerful techniques for training the mind in a new direction, sort of creating new neural pathways in the brain. Wow, that sounds fascinating. It sounds like it really was a pivotal time for you. Yeah, there. yeah, because, you know, I also grew up, you know, I mentioned my father was so, was a business guy, was so into money. And here I am in this retreat that's in the simplest of settings. The, the food is simple. 
the rooms and the bed is very simple. There's no distractions. There's no entertainment. There's just silence. And yet I'm sensing this, this, I don't know, abundance isn't quite the word, but it was sort of like this fullness, this fullness of life during this meditation retreat. I'm feeling this, I'm feeling like, like I have enough, like I'm not missing anything. And in my usual life, I was always aware of what I was missing or what somebody else had. But on this retreat, of course, we were all the same. I mean, we, it, it, you were just with yourself and you were just meditating. So uh, it brought forward this, this awareness of the wealth that I have within myself and I've come to see everyone has within themselves that we often overlook because we're so focused on the external on money. Right. I'm so glad you mentioned that word enough because that was going to be my next question. So many of us feel, oh my gosh, I haven't done enough. I haven't achieved enough. I haven't made enough money or I haven't made enough of an impact in the world. So what are your thoughts on that? What do we have to do to be enough? Mm. Yes. Yes. I mean, it's first to recognize the cultural current is so strong and it's reinforcing the idea that we're not enough, that we don't have enough, we don't do enough. And all that is great in some ways for the consumer economy because it gets us to keep buying stuff, to keep doing stuff because we're trying to, you know, we're on this constant self-improvement course. But that just leads to more self-improvement or more wanting. It's like we never get to arrive because we're training the brain to be future oriented and a brain trained to find enoughness in the future. When it gets to that future, it's still a brain that expects enough to arrive in the future. So what I say is that somehow you have to contradict the, the cultural momentum. You have to contradict what um, John D. Rockefeller defined as enough when, when he, in 1916, he was the world's first billionaire. And a journalist said, what's your definition of enough? And he said a little bit more. And to me, we all have to contradict that by finding that enoughness right in this moment, not in 10 minutes or five minutes from now, but right now to find this sense of enough enough sense of humor, enough common sense, um, enough house, enough friends, even, even enough money to find a way for your current finances to be enough. Because once you do that, to me, this mindset of enough is a launching pad for a lot more, but you're no longer grasping for it. And without that grasping, it's more likely to happen. So you're still having intentions. You know, if your intention is to, you know, have a, a million dollars, a billion dollars or start a company, you, you're having all that in your life, but you're no longer gripping it as if it holds the secret to your happiness. You're finding, you're creating this sense of wellness right in this moment. And I, I think that has been transformational for me and for so many of my students, my community, to start to find this enough right now. And, you know, even when I meet a client who tells me they have like no money, I say, find a way for your current finances to be enough. 
And that is usually a very calming exercise to do that, to at least know what's my plan B, even if nothing materializes. You know, I don't save money over the next 20 years. How, how can I find an enough life with who I am and what I have right now? Um, so I often say, you know, even if your New Year's resolutions don't come to be, can you find this enoughness within? I have experienced that from that place, anything is possible. So this idea of enough sounds boring and on the surface. To me, it's the most exciting possibility out there. Right. I want to know what your goal was a few years ago when you formed the firm Abacus. Yeah. So one is to was to sort of contradict a little bit of the financial industry, which is always going for more. I mean, I, I noticed that because I worked for a brokerage firm and I would see people tell clients, well, when you get to a million or five million, you're going to have enough. And then the client would get there and the advisor would set a new goal or the client would set a new goal. So it was always a moving target. So there's always this sense of not enoughness or what could say scarcity or fear in that sense of not enoughness, right? Because if you're, if you're not feeling enough or you don't feel like you have enough underneath that, even for a billionaire and many billionaires feel that sense of not enoughness, there's a sense of scarcity and fear underneath that. And we, and why live life from that place of, of scarcity? So that was one reason I started Abbas. The other one was to have an independent firm. I was working for a brokerage firm where there was all these conflict of interests with the commissions. We weren't fiduciaries. So I wanted an independent firm where I could say anything, where my employees could say anything to a client. They could recommend treasuries or recommend buying a house or not buying a house. It didn't matter to their compensation. And then I felt like that it was possible to help people really shift their behavior around money to, to soften. So I often don't say, we're not going to get rid of your beliefs around money. If you grew up with a belief that money is dirty or bad or that I can't earn more than X dollars a year, I don't think it's so simple to get rid of that belief. It might keep recirculating. But by interrupting that, but that belief by by doing um, uh, holding some compassion for that belief, you might some other belief might emerge, or you won't be as attached to that belief. You won't act out from that belief as much. Like you might hear the thought, "Oh, I can't make more than X dollars a year," but then you'll still apply for the job. You, you, that thought will no longer hold you back when you've done some of this work. So those are all the reasons I started Abacus is really to help people have a new relationship with money, to not have it be just a firm that, you know, takes a dollar and turns it into two dollars, but that finds a sense of purpose and even joy with their finances. Right. Spencer, you do retreats, don't you? I'd, I'd just like to hear a little bit about yeah. the retreats. That you yeah, have. so these are interesting. So, you know, this came about from the financial advisor community. Um, they Several financial advisors uh, were speaking about emotional intelligence and how absent it is amongst financial advisors, you know, maybe amongst all financial professionals, lawyers, accountants, there's usually not a lot of emphasis on emotional awareness, intelligence, going through business school, law school, accounting. 
And so she was looking around for someone who could lead a program to help increase our emotional intelligence. And she was referred to me and I started something called the Mindful Advisor Retreat, where we invite financial professionals, lawyers, accountants, and we, it's a 24-hour retreat, no technology, no devices. And we do a bunch of practices to help cultivate deeper listening skills, to help cultivate what I call a beginner's mind, to help cultivate a, scent, a quality of resilience within so you're not so thrown by the ups and downs in your law practice or your financial practice. Uh, it's, it's just this great opportunity for financial advisors to come together for that 24 hours and, and sort of let go of everything. So it's sort of this true vacation. And then they have this possibility of really connecting to peers and learning from each other. So a lot of the 24 hour retreat is actually not me speaking, but them looking at their own situations together and getting the wisdom of small groups within the, within the um, retreat. Do you have a retreat coming yes. up? And yes. if so, where? Yes, so I have one coming up um, November 1st. It's November 1st okay. to November 2nd. And it's in Northern California at Green Gulch Zen Center. It's right at the Pacific Ocean. So we use this place because it is just stunning. It's in the Marin Headlands. So these, we do an incredible epic hike. We, we go to the beach. Um, and we stay, um, it's beautiful surroundings and food and everything. So it's this incredible vacation for the, like you're getting away from the crowdedness of your mind so that you can really hear your thoughts and, and maybe cultivate some new insights about your life, about your business. So that's coming up November 1st, and November 2nd. And, and we, we attract people from all over uh, the country. Um, we've even had someone come from Canada. So everybody's invited. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. And your website is Spencer. Uh, just let me see here. Spencer, yeah, hyphen Sherman.com. Yeah. Yeah. And it's Spencer with a C, S P E N C E R hyphen S A G R M A N.com. And I imagine we can learn more about the retreat right there in your website. Yes, if you right? go to the events page of the website on that Spencer Sherman.com, um, you'll find out more about the retreat. You can see what other people have said about the retreat. Um, you'll also find um, articles that I've written up on LinkedIn about the retreat. Uh, yeah. And, and while we're talking about my website, there's also a bunch of free resources on the website too. If you just, if you do a forward slash free after spencer-sherman.com, you'll get a bunch of free resources as well. Oh, fantastic. So can you share with us a story about someone that came to the retreat and there was a transformation that took place and it was just a really fantastic experience for them? Yeah. So um, I'm thinking about this one person who came to the retreat and was feeling like her partners had some mixed feelings about her becoming a partner in, in the firm. And she felt like she was at a point where she really wanted to become the partner or she was going to leave and go to another firm. And the feedback that she got from the small group and from me was to start embodying being a partner, to act as if she's already a partner. 
And, you know, so we, we did some exercises around that about how to embody already being a partner, how to speak as if you're already a, a partner, how to start thinking through the issues that partners think about. So you're no longer coming from the place of being an employee, like you're thinking like an owner, like an entrepreneur. And I did hear back from her like a month after the retreat and she did get accepted to partnership and she felt it was because she really was owning this. She was, it wasn't just you know, thinking it, but she was actually contemplating all the challenges that partners have and coming forward with ideas around that when she went to the, um, the, the partnership meeting to see if she was going to be selected, she was now prepared to speak as if she was a partner. So I think that was a great transformation that happened because she went from not believing she was going to become a partner to really owning it. So it's like, yeah, what a great story. Yeah, it's like, like even in that enough, you know, sort of analogy to, to enough, like she got to the place where even if they didn't take her as a partner, she was already a partner and she was going to find partnership at another firm. So it's almost like she was no longer grasping it. She was at ease. And if I said, you know, partners want to see that you're at ease with yourself. Like we don't, yeah. no one wants, you know, no one wants the person who's like grasping for someone, like grasping for a, for a relationship, uh, whether it's a romantic relationship or a work relationship. We want the person that's qualified, um, that meets the demands of the situation, but not the person that desperately needs it. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I want to know if you have a question. I'm sorry. I want to know if you have a, a story that you can tell us that's related to, to bullying, because I've worked in this field for quite some time. Do you have something you can share about this? Yeah. So, so it's just hap this is just coincidence, Bruce, that I, well, maybe not total coincidence. I mean, I think it's, I, I, I just, I, education has always been so important to me and the culture of my family. And so two of the, my most significant nonprofits that I'm involved with have to do with schools and particularly creating better environments in schools. And one, one is called Community Matters and the other one is called Mindful Schools. And from Mindful Schools, I love this, um, this story that they, they shared about a boy who was having a lot of issues with aggression and he was in the schoolyard playing at recess and he wanted to punch another kid and he, and then he had the awareness that wow i'm i'm wanting to punch another kid and can i just be with that can i take a breath and can I just let it be that there's this desire to punch this kid, but I don't have to punch this kid. And that to me is like the, like the essence of mindfulness, that you can be mindful of a really negative state of being or, or action, but you don't have to act on it. Uh, and he didn't. Uh, so to me that you know ties in so much with money, like this awareness of that I really want to buy this house or something. I really feel the desperation, but it's actually not the right house for me. So I'm going to, I'm going to let go or I'm going to pause and think about it for sleep on it for three days before I make this major purchase, which is often a recommendation I give. Um, so 
mindful schools is teaching kids to do something very simple to gain this awareness of the emotions that are not healthy emotions uh, to act from. Um, so to me, that, that to me, that's a game changer. Yeah, for sure. What a great story that is. As we move forward in the interview, I want to ask you five quick answer questions, Spencer. So just 30-second answers are perfect. The first one is this. Who is one person who has been a powerful mindfulness influence in your life? Um, I would say, I mean, certainly the teachers that I've studied with. Um, so Analyo is a, um, a monastic from Germany. Um, who I love, um, Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein are three people. I mean, there's others as well, but they have been, Sophie Rinpoche, they have been very influential, I feel, in my life and, and uh, created sort of an aspiration for me to really take the practices to heart. Awesome. And my second question is about emotions. So how has mindfulness helped you deal with your emotions differently? Yeah, so it's it's helped me like this like this young boy, this this eight year old boy. It's helped me to slow down, to not like I don't need like a perfect example is uh, one of my business partners sent me an email, and I so much wanted to fire back. It got me so angry this email, and I wanted to fire something back. And then the mindfulness came on. I had this awareness like wow, if I do that, we're going to get into a back and forth. And I just let it be. I said, go to sleep. And by the morning, he sent me another email apologizing for the first email and was all resolved without me having to do anything. And I think the point of the story is that that mindfulness is 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 so is so helpful when we when we when we find ourselves in that reactive place. So I think it's it's really shortened by reactivity and given me more options, like in this case, the option to let go and sleep, go to sleep and come back to it in the morning instead of instead of this attachment to reacting to it right now. It, you know, and I can, it's analogous to the, to the investment world is sometimes we feel like the markets are falling and I've got to do something about it. So I sell all my investments at the bottom and mindfulness might give us that spaciousness to find that there are other possibilities than just that one rigid response. Right. Let's talk about breathing, yeah. Spencer. Do you have some comments, thoughts on breathing? Yes. As yeah, well, there's mindfulness? nothing more fundamental, right? We can talk about money all <laughs> yeah. day, but you know, if That's you're not right. breathing, uh, it doesn't matter how many billions you have. Um, so there's another mm -hmm. place where maybe we can find a sense of enoughness is just with the breath, is the breath enough like i've got enough air coming in and out um but i developed something called the money breath because i feel like when we're in that moment like we're in the store or we're about to buy something uh that's when the anxiety can really come on for me so i developed this money breath as a way of getting more oxygen to the brain because when we're in that panic that fight flight mode our our breath gets very shallow so we're not getting oxygen to the brain even though we most need it in that moment. And we also need a pause so that maybe we can open our aperture and see more options for us than just, you know, maybe buying that expensive car or not buying it. Um, so this money breath is a, basically is a longer exhale than an inhale. And there's been all this neuroscience, 
you know, that's proven that when we do that, we really calm down the whole nervous system. We kind of move more into that parasympathetic nervous system. And from there, we can access our wisdom, which we all have. That's another thing, Bruce, I'm put out there that everybody has common sense slash wisdom around money. It's just a matter of being able to access it. Right. Yes. Totally. I would agree with that 100%. My next question is about a book. Is there a book that you would recommend that's related to mindfulness? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, I like Jack Cornfield is, 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 um, his book, A Path with Heart, is, is a great mm-hmm. book. Many people, including myself, have found that very helpful. Sharon Salzberg, Real Happiness, uh, Tara Brock, Radical Accept- Acceptance are three books um, around mindfulness that, you know, especially for if you're, you know, fairly new, uh, all these, but even if you're intermediate, these books are all really, really powerful. Um, and I want to say that the practice is, um, that's where it's at. And the practice doesn't have to wait for the cushion. So let go of the idea of finding 20 or 30 minutes Maybe you'll find them, but even if you have five seconds or one second, you can take a moment of pause, a moment of mindfulness where you're just aware of what's happening right now, or you just interrupt a thought. You're about to say something to someone that you know is not going to be kind, and you're aware of it, and you interrupt yourself. That, to me, is what produces the mo- has produced the most progress for me, more than reading any book. Right. How about apps? Are there any yeah. apps at all that you recommend? Yeah, I mean, I like the 10% Happier app. I was on the 10% Happier um, app pet podcast. You'll find me there. Um, I also like um, Sam Harris's app, uh, the Waking Up app. Um, the, these are helpful. I mean, I find sometimes that the app just is like, okay, I'm just going to hit this button and I'll have this guided meditation. And that can be, that structure can be, very helpful when your mind is maybe racing or you feel like today's not the day to do mindfulness. I just can't sit. Sometimes those apps can be so helpful. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Well, thanks for all of that. And as we move toward the end of the interview, I want to ask you if you have any final words of advice for our listeners, Spencer. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say again, if you know, if if what we're talking about is resonating with you, you can find those free resources at spencer-sherman.com forward slash free. And then the other thing I'd say is to write down your intentions. There's something so powerful around writing your intentions down around money. If if you want to own a house by the end of the year or get to a certain amount of money or you want to um, start a business, whatever it might be, um, to have an intention for that written down and then to write down the easy, doable steps that you're going to take in the next few weeks. That I found so helpful for myself. Right, yeah. Planning some steps really can make a Doable steps. I think a lot of us end up you know, going for big steps. I'm going to do this and this. I'm going to go to the gym, you know, 15 times this week. No, write down something that's really achievable. 
like I'm going to do one push-up this week. Let it be that bad. I'm going to, I'm going to save a, you know, $10 this week, you know, something small that you can achieve because those little successes start to snowball and then you can keep ratcheting up the intentions. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It's been so good to talk to you, Spencer, and thanks for doing what you do and share all of this information so that people can be more mindful with their money. Yes, Bruce, it's been great. You're offering such an amazing service to bring mindfulness to this dark uh, corner that has gotten so little attention. So thank you for what you're doing. You're welcome. Bye now. Bye for now. Hey, Mindful Tribe, thanks for joining me today on the show. And uh, hey, check out my YouTube channel, mindfulnessmode.com slash TV is how you can find it. Or just go to YouTube and type in Mindfulness Mode Podcast and it will come right up. And I would certainly appreciate if you subscribe and if you comment on a couple of the videos. And with that, take what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.